Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning. Let me see before I class if I can do this now. I want to do the Haftorah this week uh, and be efficient. Today's uh, podcast, Haftorah podcast, is being sponsored um, by Shuli Mensch, by uh, Alan Mensch's wife. Al Mensch, old, old student of mine from long ago. And now, Baruch Hashem, family and everything here in Baltimore. And this is his father-in-law, Shuli, is his wife. And she's um, dedicating today, today, on Chai Elo, is her father's yard site. Third yard site, Rabbi Howard Goldman of Chicago. And uh, according to what she writes, he was an amazing guy. She says, my father was a true onov and carrying himself with humility, but the truth is he was a big Talmud Chacham and a Bucky in Tanakh. Well, you don't find that too often. He knew every Pasek Pirish from Yecheskel, the Eev Chumash, Navi, the Rambi, you name it, knew it all. He was a Pshat man. That's my kind of guy. And he never liked to veer off on tangents. That's not my type of guy. He would always ask, what does the Pasek say? What is the Pasek trying to teach you? When he laid off Torah in his tenor voice and tell Chicago, everybody was mesmerized. Uh-huh. It's because he knew all the words by heart and what they truly meant. You know, today we're going to do after this is uh, very fitting because today we're going to do Haftorah, which only those type of people know. In other words, the Shibbat and the Chamta, the seven, uh, 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 you know, Haftorahs and the Chama and all that Yeshayo stuff, most people don't know actually what they're talking about. It's You could take the trouble to read it in English, but I'm happy to say it's good for me and most people don't do that. Um, so he did. He would always ask, what does the Pusik say? What's the Pusik trying to teach you? When he would lay the Haftorah in his tenor voice in Chicago, mesmerized. It's because he knew the words by heart and what they meant. He taught thousands of stu- wow, thousands of students, Chumash, and Navi of the years in Chicago. And when he would speak to family Simcha, uh, people would come by, even not related, just to hear him speak. Uh, and Rabbi Heber said that he was a Pasha, he acted like a Pasha Yid, but he wasn't. Okay? And a walking conquered dancer. You can see, I'll tell you right now, uh, he must have left quite an impact. Uh, on his many students, his family, and on me, his youngest daughter. Our sponsor would say, we were a team and best friends since I was born. Wow, that's very nice. You don't hear that too often. Everything I believe and I say is due to him. His legacy lives in our family and all the children named after him, Chaim Yitzhak, here and in Israel. May Mashiach come soon. With Chiyas HaMais, we united, live in the year of third base. Amigdash, my father spoke of it so often. That's her uh, dedication. That's quite a dedication. And may I say, I'm sure, <laughs> I imagine... Shuli doesn't know the Tanakh the way her father did. This Haftorah is the one. <laughs> because this Haftorah, this week, which is, of course, um, from Yeshayahu, uh, chapter 60, is the uh, Haftorah of the glorious future. I don't think it gets better than what's described over here. Uh, what is it? If your father knew all that stuff, then he knew exactly uh, what I'm talking about over here. And that is, the prophet Isaiah is describing the golden messianic era in glowing terms. In glowing terms. Uh, you know, The guy may be steeped in, 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 in darkness, but you'll have light. Okay, the light of the Lord. So, he's talking about a, a tremendous prosperity and uh, a godless on the part of the Jewish people. 
uh, in the future era. This is where we get a lot of ideas of the glorious messianic future. Not that anybody knows exactly what it means, but you get some kind of a general idea. The only point I wanted to call attention to in today's talk uh, is the role of the Goyim, which I find interesting. If you look through the Haftorah today, which is chapter 60 in Isaiah, and again, it's very glorious, you know, the whole world will come to you, they'll lick the dirt off your feet. I'm serious about that, right? It says your your former enemies will kiss your feet. <laughs> that's very Middle Eastern. Uh, where is it? No, that's not it. It's a little bit later. Yeah, look at this. Uh, the people formerly tortured you will now will now bend down before you, and so forth. And somewhere it says they'll they'll lick they'll lick you the dust off your feet. It's very Middle Eastern. No, I want you to uh, you know we will we will rock right, and the other guys will acknowledge their inferiority. So you know, like the guy always said, it's not enough to do well. Everybody in your class in high school has to fail in order for you to be perfect. <laughs> the Jews have to do good, and the guy not. It's a it's a funny thing. Now, um, seriously, there is repeated references here and there going through the Parsha, this Haftorah, of the role of the non-Jews, which raises a very interesting question because we don't know exactly what the time of the Mashiach is going to be like. Not exactly. The Rambam famously says that those who have an exact, um, what's the right word, you know, uh, outline of how the Messianic era will, will unfold are not telling the truth, they don't know either. We have a general idea. Right? You look at the Rambam, the end of the Yad HaZarah. We have a general idea. It'll be a plus, not a minus. But the exact nature, we don't know. Now, of course, in the books of the prophecy, they had Nevuah, so, you know, they're described, but they, they saw glorious stuff, but they're putting it in their own words, you understand? So one of the interesting things is, if we ask ourselves, and there's no clarity on what I'm about to raise, What's going to happen to the Gansavelt in the time of Mashiach? There are two or three ways of understanding it. One goes like this. The Jews will be okay, and everybody else will go their own way, and to hell with them. In other words, will there be a war between Ukraine and Russia in the time of Mashiach? Could be. You know, could be. Won't affect Eretz Yisrael. Will there be a war with China and Taiwan in the time of Mashiach? Could be. Won't affect Eretz Yisrael. You understand? Know God will so arrange matters. So in other words... It'll be like a resurrection of the Davidic era, like King David's time or something like that, or King Solomon. In the time of David and Shlomo, when things were good, and you had a base of Migdash, and the Ruch HaKodesh, and the Shekhin, and all the rest of it, we don't say that because Kalal Yisrael was doing well, the whole world was doing equally well. There were wars and famines and junk going on. If you want to get down to what we call the uh, 9th or 10th century BCE, you know, that's when we figured David and Melch was Shlomo, you know, in the 900s B.C., Berich. Um, you know, there were wars between the Egyptians and the others, and the Hittites and the others, and this and that and the other. The Jews were doing good. Ishtach is Gafnov, Ishtach is Taino. Klaal Yisrael was okay. They had the whole country. Uh, they had a base in Migdash. They had Shlomo. Uh, everybody was prosperous on their own. Because everybody made a decent living. Some more, some less, but everybody made a decent living. Uh, in other words, there weren't any starving poor. And uh, what more do you want? You know, that's one way of looking at it. And all we want, this would be a minimalist kind of thing. All we want is a restoration of that. Hold on one second. Yeah, that was my daughter. Okay. Um, what was I saying? 
the the the, the situation was uh, you know minimally just fine. In other words, the quality throw is okay. Uh, hopefully, in a, in an ideal situation, because the quality throw is okay, they can develop a Yiddishkeit in the sense of ruchnius, and I guess after that, once we get our act co- together correctly, and we create a perfect society. <laughs> Where all the mitzvahs of the Torah are implemented at the same time, not just a few, then they'll create a model situation and the rest of the world will little by little attain enlightenment as a result of it. That's a regular, a rationalistic, I would even say something of a minimalistic idea of a Jewish utopia. You understand what I'm saying? A Jewish utopia. Uh, the problem with us has always been and still is today some mitzvahs get a lot of play and other mitzvahs don't get a lot of play. You know, People are big into tefillin, but they're not as big into haftarecha kamocha. You know, I mean that that kind of thing. Uh, or as we say today, they're good with the with with, with the uh, tzitzis, but not good with the when they being honest in business or something like that. So you know, the Torah doesn't work correctly unless it's a total deal. If you do them all, all the mitzvahs, it's like one of these uh, systems, you know, in in in, in uh, physics or in mechanics or things like this. For the for the for the machine to operate correctly, all parts of it have to be operating correctly. If you only only a few. It doesn't go so well. Something else screwed up. That's been the problem with Jewish history. Some mitzvahs get a lot of play, and other mitzvahs don't get a lot of play. Like I said before, it's a lot of people that are real from and show, but not from in the business. You know, things like that. Uh, now, therefore, the implication is that at the time of Mashiach, things will be different. The Jews will be, you know, um, okay on their own. In the Bilba Model Society, the rest of the world will wallow in, in, in sorrows and civil wars and strife and all the rest of it. But little by little, they say, hey, the Jews have got something uh, right together. And therefore, let's, let's um, you know, let's uh, copy them. And sooner or later, you'll bring around the enlightenment and liberation of the whole world, which is the second paragraph you say every day in the Olenu. That's all. You say it all the time. You know, all that stuff. You know, that whole business. Now, in our Haftor, it, it sounds a little more than that. Uh, it sounds like the nations of the world will be affected by the Jewish restoration, and they and it'll be so glorious that they themselves will play an interesting role, a key role. The Gentiles will play a key role in the restoration of Tzion, Beis Amigdash, and Klal Yisrael. Uh, which is a different scenario, it's a more glorious scenario. Uh, in other words, it's not like the whole world will, will keep doing their thing. But rather, it's a, it, it's a, it's a different version where they don't have that words in the passage, but that's what it implies. That what happens to the Yidden will have a positive impact on the non-Yidden. That's, that's the very interesting meaning of this. And he describes it over here, where he says... That the, the 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 if the Jews get a um, a geula, it'll mean that they'll have enlightenment. Kumi the theme of or, which doesn't mean physical light, right? Kumi you, you you know which isn't right? 
say the the light is coming, meaning the enlightenment, which will be so it'll it'll be a, a, a conquest of the world by ideas. You see, the other nations of the world will still be stuck in darkness. They will not be able to liberate themselves from the desire to do war and all this other junk. But God's light will shine on the Jews. So in other words, there will be a, a blatant difference between the ideas and ideals of the Jews on the one hand and the nations on the other. And they will come to see the superiority of the Jewish system and want to be part of it. I didn't say they're converting, but they want to be part of it. They play a role in it. Uh, and uh, the language is very striking because he says, they'll be wallowing in darkness, but they'll see a light. Imagine if you were in a big room or some situation where it's all dark, and far off you see a light, you want to run to the light. It's a natural. The guy and the kings of the guy will run to the light. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean physically to run to a light. It means they'll say, wow, this system is the right system. Right? The way the Jews are doing that's the right way. You understand? And you see, therefore, that the nations of the world will, in some way, uh, want to participate in the Geulah Yisrael, which is the most remarkable kind of phenomenon. In the Geulah Yisrael. And you see repeated references to it in this Haftorah. I find it fascinating because he goes on and says that um, you'll have tremendous prosperity, and the camels and all this stuff will come. And people who are not Jewish will build the walls of Jerusalem. So notice, people will come. Why, I mean, why does it have to be that way? I mean, from a certain point of view, heck with it. What do I want the Glam to build Yushalam? We can build the base and make sure ourselves. Thank you very much. That could be a Jewish operation. Why does the prophet say, Ubo Right? That it'll be foreigners, I mean, non Jews, who want to build. Building the walls of Jerusalem means they want to help and participate in this process of liberating the Jews because they see in the liberation of Klal Yisrael and the Geula something good will be for them as well. So in other words, it's not what I described before, something of a zero-sum game where the Jews will be doing well and the guy in hell with them. But it's not going to be that way. The vision you have over here is it'll be good for the Jews and it'll spin off on the guy and so much so that the guy will want to participate in, in helping the Jews because if the Jews will do better then the Goyim also will do better. Malchem Yishar Sunech. The kings of the nations will want to serve you. Meaning, they'll, as I said before, say, we can find our Tachlis uh, in helping you do your thing. Okay? It goes over here. And, And it will be clear, in terms of enlightenment, to the nations of the world, that there are two ways to go. You can go and join the Yidden and help them and survive, or you continue in the current way and you'll perish. Will they perish from war? Will they perish from, you know, uh, chemical bombs? Because, you, you see, the crime can't help it. The world is so constituted today that we're, we're, that we're on a uh, suicide course. Uh, if you're an environmental type, you're on a suicide course, Malchemist the environment, you know, with the global warming and all that stuff. If you're not... Let me put it this way. In every century now, we're making more possible the destruction of the human race. 
First we came with the A-bomb, and now it's the H-bomb, and now it's the, you know, the chemical weapons. Look at the stupid thing this dumb uh, Corona could do. Imagine if somebody wants to weaponize something worse than Corona. It's not so hard to do, right? I mean, it's the real fear we have. We in our children's time, what's to stop some nut country from unleashing Pomona instead of Corona? And it's uh, 10 times as strong, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? So in other words, the commitment to a science which is unable to restrain itself and always has to, you know, follow human curiosity, which is endless, and that cannot help but lead to better and more uh, efficient ways of accomplishing the destruction of the human race, which you can't stop because there's always going to be smart people out there who just want to pursue areas of research which involve greater ways of destruction, even though it's counterproductive because you're creating your own Frankenstein, but they cannot help it. You understand? Because, the, the, you know, the, this research leads to that research, and next one leads to the next one. And, you know, if, and you want to weaponize it if you're a bad country because you want to then take out the world or destroy your enemies or something like that. And so this is called darkness. You see, this is called darkness. The way out of it is called light. So, as he said before, people will say, we better abandon the, you know, narrow scientific uh, you know, pursuit of knowledge, which is going to cause all to destroy, and we better go and build the walls of the Klal Seems to me today to be Pashim Shad that, uh, you know, the world itself without the message of the Torah, if you don't absorb it, um, <laughs> we're, we're on a destruction course. Today's the 21st century. By the 22nd century, any Tom, Dick, and Harry be able to do something that can, you know, wipe out the human race through a chemical agent or a biological agent or something like that. Yeah, because you cannot help but make it more and more uh, available to, to in, in large, larger quantities. And the smart ones will be therefore be compelled by self-interest to embrace the Torah, embrace the Kali Yisrael. And he says over here, the smart ones, following self-interest, that's one heck of a pusset. It says, how would you translate it here? Let me get a good English. The children of your oppressors will come bow down to you, and everyone who treated you with contempt will prostrate themselves at the soles of your feet. I mean, that's something, right? Bending to you about your feet. So notice, just to give me an example, the Germans who killed so many Jews, time will come to us like this. we got to follow... The Kali Yisrael uh, knows we've got to follow the Torah's values uh, and you know, and acknowledge what we did wrong, because otherwise we'll get wiped out ourselves. So in other words, this is a suggestion that what will lead the nations of the world to embrace enlightenment will be their enlightened self-interest. The recognition, you know, no, let's put it this way. Would a person, how should I put it? Mm, I once saw a documentary with the American soldiers talking about fighting in World War II. And I can't remember where it was. And there was some guy who was an American general or something like that in 1945 when they busted into Germany itself. You know, February and March, they broke over the Rhine and they went to Germany, La Misa. And they were going town after town. And this is the American army under Patton, you know. So if the Germans, uh, you know, tried to fortify a town, they just bombed the hell out of it and wiped everybody out. They don't care. Uh, which I don't blame them. And um, 
And he said, there's some German guy, an officer got wounded. And the Americans, you know, took him as a prisoner. And they're going to give him a blood transfusion. And the German guy said like this. Uh, it's not Jewish blood, right? No, it was, you know, from the American transfusion. I don't want any Jewish blood in me. And the doctor, who was Italian, American Italian guy, said, to hell with you. I won't give you nothing. So he died. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, if that's your attitude, screw you. And the German died. So in other words, if you have that kind of attitude, that I'd rather die or perish rather than accept anything from Claudius Roll or accept that they're better rather than bow down to them, if you wish, then you will die. Okay? So Yeshayo, who lived thousands of years ago, is describing the Messianic era in these terms. You know? And um, therefore, Again and again, you have this reference to the Goyim. Right? <laughs> you know? You will uh, suckle the milk of the nations, the breast of the kings, and know that I, God, will save you. Meaning you'll, you'll, you'll get the best stuff from them. Uh, so this constant reference, and it, by the way, as a result, Lo Boy, I bet you in Israel today, this Shabbos, everybody's going to read that with a sigh. Lo Wouldn't it be nice if there was no Hamas <laughs> in Israel? Uh, but anyway, this is, this is uh, you know, the description. And he says, you know, that the light will be the light of God and so on and so forth. All of which are variations of the theme that I just said. Now I'll tell you what I think. Uh, one of the big problems that the Jews and Gaulists has always been, I mean from day one, from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, is that um, since the Jews are only a small group and the rest of the world is different, maybe we're wrong and they're right. Maybe we're wrong and they're right. We have inferiority complex vis-a-vis the nations of the world. Whether you like it or not, it's always been a major part of Jewish history. Uh, this certainly was the case for the first thousand years when they were in time of the Shoftim and Bayes Rishon. Why are they always imitating the gods of other countries? Obviously, they felt that there's some superiority in what the others are doing. I know it's weird, but it's a fact. I mean, who did Shlomo, who, who, did, who did build these uh, the temples to? Kamosh, Milcom, you know, gods of Edom, Amon, Mov, and all this other junk? I mean, why? Obviously, it meant mental. Notice, why didn't they have an attitude 3,000 years ago? 2,500 years ago, saying like this, you know, uh, we're not interested in deities of small, small Middle Eastern, um, you know, nations who don't even count. You know, what's Moab? <laughs> you know, what's Amo? Is a garnish. Maybe Egypt, you know, that at least you get here. You know what I mean? Maybe Egypt. But, uh, the uh, you know, these other countries, CC, it's always been and is today among most Jews, many Jews, that you measure yourself by the standards of others. Uh, I would even say that the Hasidim and the others who try to batten the hatches down are reacting defensively against that. You understand? In other words, the reason you don't want any English in the schools and things like this, because it might lead the children to say, oh, the guy might be better than us, so let's go follow the guy's stuff. Now, even the insularity and the isolation which is displayed in, shall we say, ultra-Orthodox circles, reflects a sense of inferiority, just as it's re- reacting to it by, by doubling down on the insularity. That's one mahalach. Uh, and, and it's just part of who we are, whether we like it or not. And so, what I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a second. And so, there's going to have to be some way to break that. Uh, 
And the only way is for the guy themselves admit it. So let's say, for example, I'll be very blunt. What if the Mashiach came tomorrow? Really? If the Mashiach came tomorrow, how would that manifest itself? You know, some guy would show up or something like that on a white donkey, I don't know, and say all the Jews can now go to Israel. Would most American Jews pick up and move to Israel? You see my point? Would a guy who's intermarried, some say, I'm dropping everything, I'm moving to Israel. Would a guy who's totally not from, doesn't believe in anything, all the rest of it, even if you tell me a Messianic figure has appeared in, in the state of Israel, in the land of Israel, he's going to change it. He's not going to change the, the leopard will not change the spots. You get what I'm saying? So you might say, well, then heck with them. You know, the from Jews are moving, everybody else will be. But that's not the plan. God wants the whole Jewish people, whoever's around that time, to be part of the Gula. So how would that work? Do you see my point? We always assume, rather uh, superficially, uh, that when the Mashiach, Mashiach era comes, it'll be so self-evident that all the Jews will, you know, quote-unquote, see the light. But it's not true. Meaning, when I say it's not true, it's not the reality today. I mean, to be perfectly honest, as I said other times, who knows if the from Jews will listen? You know, if the Mashiach comes and turns out to be a Misnagat, will the Hasidim go? Or vice versa, you know what I mean? If it, if it turns out to be Lubavitch, will, will, will uh, you know, the Satmar go? You, you know what I mean? It's always like that. Now, um, so how do you beat that? So let me say this. The only way that I can think of they would beat it is if the Goyim themselves say, oh, this is the real Geula. Wow, this is amazing. Because all these intermarried and assimilated Jews, all the rest of it, what impresses them what the Goyim say. That's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. And as long as the Goyim reject it, then, you know, they'll, they'll be influenced by that. But if you say, Holchu Goyim L'Orech, Umalochim Yishar Sunech, and, you know, Bo B'nei Nechor is Heicholech, if the Goyim themselves say, this is the real thing, this is the Messianic era, we thought it would be Yashka, okay, so it wasn't, it's something else. You understand? If, if, if they themselves acknowledge it, and especially if you have groups like the Muslims and all the rest of it, who say, which is Mamash the Pasuk, you know, where it says, uh, what was it again? Uh, Those who oppress you will come and bow down to you, right? And they'll kiss your feet and so forth. Uh, and you say, really? Uh, you know, the Palestinians? Uh, you know, the Syrians? Uh, you know, the, the, the Saudi Arabia? They too? Then all of a sudden, you're liberals, you're uh, assimilationists, you're others say, oh, okay. <laughs> you understand? It will take the acknowledgement of the guy to persuade the non from Jews. I shouldn't say the word non from, the alienated Jews, um, that this is the real thing and that they want to participate. Otherwise, you'll have a situation I described before. Telling American Jews totally not from today. Oh, now you can move there to Israel. And you can keep Shabbos. And you can keep kosher, glad kosher. And you won't have to eat all the ham and everything anymore. That's I guess. That's not a, what's the plus in it for me. I like my I like the way it is. It'll require, you know, that the society's like that. <laughs> so basically, sometimes the best cure of is if, the, if you can prove the going go along. I remember, you know, the Queen of England just died, and I think you're reading in the press accounts uh, that Prince Charles and his brothers were circumcised because that used to be the minig of the British royal family, the Hanoverian dynasty. I, I think many people are familiar with that. And I remember years ago, long ago, I read a uh, 
a uh, book, which was like a diary or something like that, of a uh, chaplain in the army who was a religious guy. I think it was like in the 50s, early 60s. And, you know, his job was to be a chaplain. And it, it was all over the Midwest at the army base, the Air Force bases and junk like that. I can't remember the name of the book. And one thing he always kept in his wallet was like, uh, you know, something laminated or something like that, an article from the uh, New York Times. And it was an article from the, you know, when, when, when um, in, from the 40s, early 50s, when the royal family was born, Prince Charles and Prince Andrew and the others. And it said, you know, the queen got a mile to do the circumcision. Right? Because that's what happened. The, those who are listening in the UK know what I'm talking about. He got a mile to do the uh, the circumcision, uh, which was the tradition. Now, by the way, the current crop, not. You know, King William and these other guys, not. That's my understanding, because that was Diana, and she had no, no time for this stuff. But I'm talking about before that. And um, this chaplain used to always keep the paper from the New York Times, Dafka, the New York Times, because whenever he was in the Midwest... And he had an army couple or some other couple out there, Jewish. And they had a baby. And then it came a question, should you do a bris? And they would say, eh, I don't know, it's weird. He said, look, and the Queen of England did it. And then they would say, yes, oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? It requires, when you deal with Jews with no self-confidence, you have to be able to say like this, the guy do it so that you could do it also. Uh, now, it's sad, but it's a reality. The guy was a chaplain. He was quote-unquote, on the front lines of Yiddishkeit, and he dealt with real life. I bet you some Lubavitchers did it also, cure of people. You find these, oh, listen, circumcision, not so bad. Even the British royal family did it. Uh, that's more or less what you see in the Haftar today. Now, um, I've gone longer than I wanted to, but I think you get the idea that um, this Haftar raises very interestingly the question of what will be the roles of the people who are not Jewish during the time of the Mashiach, time of the Messianic era. Uh, there's no 100% clarity on that, but it's highly suggestive, and it's a food for thought. And if people want to have an intelligent conversation at the table this week, uh, I think that's a, a you know certain families will go for that. Which is what is the role of people who are not Jewish in the Messianic era? You know, what exact, you know what 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 is it that we envision for them? We do not envision that we'll dominate them, beat them up, and stuff like that. So what what exactly do we do we envision? Anyway. With that, I close it down. I want to thank Mrs. Mensch once again um, for sponsoring today, today being the art set of her dad. And she said very nice things about him. And with that, I wish you, I guess, a good shot. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com support dot rabbi david